Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We've launched a new subscription service around digital wildcatters called DW Insights. Basically, what it is, it's an AI-driven search engine for all the content we've created in the history of digital wildcatters. So think all our podcasts, the great Chuck Yates Needs a Job, BDE, Oil and Gas Startups, literally every podcast we've done, all the great content we've created at our live events, so Energy Tech Night, Empower, Fuse, all the great speakers we've had, the panelists, the fireside chats, it's all in there. And this search engine allows you to go key terms, words, whatever you want to hear about, methane emissions, the IRA, oil prices, and it pops up every place we've mentioned those in podcasts, and it gives you a transcript, allows you to fast forward through podcasts to literally get to the stuff you want to hear about. It's really, really cool. And one of the things that's embedded in DW Insights are these webinars we did. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a webinar with Shad Frazier of Endeavor. He came on and talked about best practices for methane emissions out in the oil field. Great stuff. It's in there. You can search through that. I actually hosted a webinar last week with Ashley and Lauren. And it's really, really good stuff. So I thought I'd drop it this week as a podcast just so you can hear the type of stuff we've got going on in there. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. I, 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 Oh, I We're think- here with Ashley and Lauren from Michael Men Robinson. We're energy on trial. Ashley, real quick, tell mom who you are. You did a wonderful job last time. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, restream. I got a practice run. You got a practice run and you nailed it. There you go. Sequels always suck. But yeah. Oh man, the pressure's on. So I am a trial attorney. I am based in Dallas and I specialize in technology disputes. Uh, especially those in the oil and gas industry, technology disputes. That's basically an umbrella term for anything from patent infringement, trade secret theft, breach of NDA, cyber incidents. That covers the whole gamut of of anything that could be technology related. And I've had cases all across the country on things from downhole tools, chemical reclamation, fracking, slick water, data compilations, uh, just about anything you can think of that's got some tech pieces to it. All right, Lauren, tell us who you are. I have to make the same joke, but I have to follow her. Uh, Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm an oil and gas trial lawyer here in Houston. I represent energy companies in high stakes lawsuits, and I am an expert in midstream and upstream contracts. So a lot of people ask, what kind of lawsuits? What does that mean that you actually do? So lawsuits alleging fraud, trespass, um, improper royalty payments, winter storm litigation, climate change. These are all of kind of some of the big things that at least or um, I'm seeing in disputes with clients in the upstream and midstream space. And her stuff is super fun. The last time I tried a case with her, we all got to put on hard hats and walk around the the (laughs) oil field. So it was fun. So this was horribly embarrassing. I was a finance person and they try to keep the finance people away from the (laughs) field, right? I went out there kind of first time. I'm walking around with my business partner, Mike Hines, man's man, engineer. And I go, Mike, it's really dirty out here. And he just said, please don't ever say that again. <laughs> so 
Okay, so energy under trial. Ashley, where are we going to start? Oh, I think we're we're actually going to start with Lauren. We've got the four C's. I'm going to talk about corporate and espionage and cybersecurity threats. And Lauren, I'm I'm going to cover climate lawsuits generally and what I term as corruption. Um, and and so you know, I'm preparing for this energy on trial. Like what what did we want to talk about? As, as trial lawyers in the energy space. Um, we thought it would be fun or interesting to talk about what we see are some of the biggest threats to the industry You know, right now. It's a really interesting time in the transition and, and, and different things that are happening, including with government regulation. So we thought it would be an interesting topic. But those are four, I guess, of the big threats that so we're going to talk about. Which C are we going with first? Let's do climate. Okay. Lay it, uh, lay it on us. Because so we do a show around here called Big Digital Energy, kind of the weekly summary of the energy business. And we talked about a Supreme Court case, April, May? Yes, April. Good was job. that a big deal? It was it a, big like deal. a big deal. It was, was a big it? deal. So the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that climate change lawsuits, so those are lawsuits where people are suing energy companies and they claim that those companies are responsible for climate change, meaning they caused it. Um, and they seek billions of dollars of damages. And so the Supreme Court recently ruled those lawsuits, they're going to be tried in state courts. And that's a big deal. Um, clients face multiple cases in across the country in different states, always a risk of inconsistent decisions. As you know, if you're having issues dealt with in different courts, different states, and then there is the risk of railroading. Um, and what's railroading? Corruption, I guess, is another C. But the best way to describe it, state court is a circus. Yeah. And if you as a litigator have not recently tried a case, a large, like a significant case in state court, I think you're missing out. But <laughs> I will also say it's, it's it can be really crazy. Um, and is that so? I, I think when we started this thing, um, I said that I'd spent a semester in law school, so somewhat dated on my view. But as I recall, generally speaking, the federal judiciary, you have lawyers that are appointed, they're approved uh, by the Senate. And then state courts, state uh, courts have elected officials in some cases, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Is that potentially where little C corruption that you just said mm -hmm. comes into things? That's exactly right. Um, having elected judges, judges are elected by the people. Um, and I mean, so for example, the U.S. Supreme Court made that ruling in April, just this June. So this just happened. The first, I guess you could say, youth climate trial happened, and that was in Montana, and it happened in state court. And based on all the coverage and everything I've seen, certainly as a lawyer looking at the situation, I was of the mindset, this is a taxpayer-funded publicity stunt. I mean, it was all seemed geared for the media um, and more of a show trial. And I, there's a bigger risk of that in state courts. And what was it, And what was kind of the fact pattern? Who, who was suing who and for what? At least what was their claim? Well, and it's adorable because it was they had these adorable kids. But, of course, it's funded by an activist group. But they had these adorable Montana children who were saying they want a clean and healthy environment. The Montana Constitution guarantees that, um, and that's actually different than most states. But So they sued, claiming that Montana had violated its own constitution 
by supporting the oil and gas industry. And so they sued the state of mm -hmm. Montana, yes. actually. Oh, wow. And so, so it's not just energy companies that are having to face this. And there's a lot of speculation and questions about these kinds of lawsuits being filed against other industries, as you can imagine, like the airline industry, other industries that have a large contribution to climate change. And I guess if you're at state court, then, I mean, you got 50 different jurisdictions because they don't they don't apply to each other. Right. Precedent in one state's not precedent at another. That's exactly right. And the and, rules are different. Right. Well, and in, and in the Montana case is a good example. The Texas Constitution doesn't guarantee a clean and healthy environment in the Constitution. Montana state constitution does. And so other states do, but you can imagine like that's not going to be maybe the type of lawsuit we would see here, but it, I do think you can expect to see that lawsuit in the other states that have that guarantee. Like yeah. I know Pennsylvania being one of them. Yeah. Allowing things to be in state court, you get to cherry pick where you're going to file your lawsuit to obviously have an environment that's the most conducive to the result that you want. Right. Oh, interesting. And, and I guess, is this just a product of the Supreme Court, like it or, or not like it, but they are pretty strict constructionalists in terms of just if it's not delegated to the uh, federal government by the Constitution, it's left to the states. Was that basically the ruling? There were a lot of arguments on, in that, and it was very specific to the Montana state constitution and who they thought should should rule on that issue. Um but I mean, something Ashley mentioned about cherry picking forum, and that goes to you know our, the little C corruption or railroading, as I call it. But being able to select the venue, um, if you notice, a lot of the times recently, a very large climate change lawsuit was filed against I mean, a ton of companies for billions and billions of dollars in Multnomah, Oregon, very rural Oregon, um, and a place, of course, that you know, company, large major oil and gas companies many of my clients are completely unfamiliar with. So then you're also having to hire lawyers, right? In a place you don't, you've never been, you don't operate. Um, but it's interesting they're choosing those kind of locations. Um, and I, I do think because there's more of the potential for there to be some funny business in state court and for them to be able to manipulate things, whether it's with who is on your jury or if it's because one of the lawyers in your law firm is best friends with the judge and having side conversations that don't include everybody else. Um, but I could give more examples of even more insane corruption. But. Well, there, I mean, there was a very famous Houston trial lawyer who shall go without name, but everything got done in Matagorda County. I know that lawyer. I mean, yeah, built buildings down there, gave mm -hmm. the judges campaigns, and the judges always seemed to feel like they had jurisdiction over whatever case was filed. I mean, I hate to be really cynical about this, but are you filing in some of these locations because let's just make the other side travel a whole bunch. Maybe they give up early. Is it really that? That's part of it. And also some of the locations we had a trial in a county that only has 4,000 residents, a county in that rural. And you're talking about four hours away from a major airport. I mean, some of the places that we're having to travel and go, they know, trust me, it is very inconvenient um, for not only my client, but for us as their lawyers to travel these places. And that's definitely part of it is make it as difficult as possible. Um, but I mean, in my experience, state judges and juries are frequently hostile to energy companies, their employees and their lawyers. Um, and so a quick example, just because it's so interesting and most people have heard about it, but we were defending a gas company and a royalty case in state court 
royalty case, right? It doesn't seem that interesting or sexy. I'm being really honest. Um, but the judge pulled a gun on me and my co-counsel during trial. It made national headlines. That's how insane things can get. And, and a lot of the times they aren't making headlines. After my story came out, I had hundreds of phone calls from people, or lawyers across the country with stories about the stuff that judges have done in courtrooms. And most people don't hear about it. And last kind of question on this, because then we'll go to another C with Ashley. But okay, so I'm sitting here, the, I'm the energy company. I'm a, literally have a 50 front war. Right. Because you can sue me in any kind of state. Um, I'm going to have to go hire local lawyers. I'm going to have to defend all these different turfs. What do I do about that today? Are there steps I should be taking, things I should be thinking about? That's um, a really good question. The truth of it is you can't avoid it. You're not going to be able to avoid getting sued. And I feel like a lot of the times in talking to clients, especially when I'm helping them more on risk avoidance, like avoiding litigation. I mean, that's typically the goal, right? As a company, you don't, you don't want to be facing major litigation, but quite frankly, there isn't going to be a choice here. Um, and state courts, are, it's very unlikely to get lawsuits dismissed. So once they're filed, you're going to have to fight it to some point. And I will say that settling quickly or easily just to make people go away makes, puts a bigger target on your back in our experience. And yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. L last question on this, just because I'm interested. Are there things you can do outside the legal venue? I mean, should you theoretically be advertising? Should you be advertising at local softball fields all throughout America? Mm -hmm. I mean, have clients thought through that? Is anybody doing that type stuff? That was a huge discussion. I was at an energy forum a couple of weeks ago, including government officials. Um, so congressmen, et cetera, who serve on the energy committee. Um, and that was a huge topic of discussion because the, the industry, quite frankly, has done a really poor job of education. Yeah, we're the worst. And it's, it's oh, and we, we experience it, I think, more than a lot of other oil and gas professionals because we're dealing with juries, right? The people that just come in or in jury selection and they stand up and they're like, I hate the defendant already because of my condo. Right. And you're like, okay, thanks. Yeah. You know, um, and so we see a lot though where people just don't understand. Like, we don't need oil and gas anymore. We can just stop. I'm like, you have no idea what you're saying. I don't know. I don't want to give the other side ammunition, but I bet they're going to track ga uh, gasoline prices. Mm -hmm. You know, more more cases will get filed. So, mm -hmm. right now that I'm hor horribly depressed, actually. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, let's, <laughs> we got four C's to get through. I barely made it through that one. <laughs> give me another C. Yes, corporate espionage. I think I'll talk about that one first, and then I'll move on to cybersecurity, which is the okay. last of the four C's. Uh, corporate espionage, that again can cover a lot of things, but at this point in time, I see oil and gas industry having a huge target on their back, and it has just been getting bigger over the past few years since COVID for a couple of reasons. Lots of employees are moving back and forth among competitors, so you can see a lot of tech going out the door just because it either exists in their brain or they're taking it and they shouldn't be. Or countries like China and Russia, they're playing catch up. There are billions of dollars behind in terms of just the development itself, much less getting the product out to the consumer. And so why would they spend the time and effort creating the uh, product themselves when it's much easier to just take it from someone that's already decided how uh, the best way to get 
any of their product out there. So uh, I think that's really coming up. And we've seen it, the DOJ, the FBI, they're getting involved, especially with uh, China-based corporate espionage, because we're seeing all of these folks actually do prison time now. There's huge fines being levied. And we're also seeing it with competitors. So you start mm -hmm. to see a lot more civil lawsuits as well. Some of them nowadays are more data compilation based, like the kind of uh, water data in Oklahoma. That's an ongoing lawsuit right now or other um, exploration based data compilations. So we see data compilations, downhole tools, NGL processing. All of those are ongoing lawsuits right now where you're starting to see a big uptick. And well, hold on real quick. How would the Chinese steal this information? Are they literally sending spies out into the field, somehow documenting things, physically taking drill bits or whatever the case may be? What? How, how are they doing this? I do have an interesting story on that after Ashley answers. Yeah. So uh, I will say that most of the time it's employee based. So okay. they will have- They're bribing. Uh, yes. They'll have a Chinese national come over. They will live here for several years. Maybe they go to school here. Then they get hired on at a huge company work for a few years, all the while mining and getting the information that they need or creating vulnerabilities in the technology so that it, a ransomware attack or other hacking, uh, they're now vulnerable and can get the information that way directly. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know, right. That's why they're going to jail. That's why there are tens of millions of dollars of fines mm -hmm. for just a single incident because this tech is worth billions. Right. And I had a case and the, this guy was sent over from the China. He was a Chinese national sent from the Chinese government and his marching orders were like, learn how to do oil and gas. I'm not lying. And he was, I think a chemical engineer, but knew nothing about oil and gas came to the United States, I guess with money started buying oil and gas properties. So anyway, I had a lawsuit that involved that because <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing. And they bought a lot of properties that they didn't understand the environmental liabilities with them. And so then we're, you know, suing about it. But when we wanted to go take another deposition of the main witness, he fled to China and that was it. That's crazy. We do have a question from the audience and I'm just going to read it. Did okay. she just say a judge pulled an actual gun on her in court? Yes. <laughs> oh my God. That is crazy. I thought that's what you said. So. He lost his <laughs> license and had to resign. He was publicly admonished. <laughs> that one had a happy ending, but yeah. Oh, uh, the, uh, crazy. Yep. Um, so they're sending sending folks over, even potentially U.S. colleges, mm -hmm. embedding them in an oil field. And are we seeing bribes too? Are they bribing so American I would workers? Say bribes, or? not so much. Okay. I, I mean, it's really a long play. They're here for years and years. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Manchurian candidate type stuff. That's it's crazy. like the Americans. You're in the Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it really is. It, it, you have to have a very long view, and the stuff can trickle out over time, or it can be like a one and done. They get everything they need, and they immediately leave the country and they come it back kind yeah. of thing. But I mean. I have four cases right now on these subjects where it's, in this case, competitors, not necessarily China or Russia alone. It can be your, unfortunately, your competitors here in the United States as well. And it really is harmful to startups. I will say in particular, one of my cases, it's a startup company. They spent seven years and millions of dollars in, in time and resources developing a technology. They then ended up firing one of their employees. That employee said, Okay, great. 
I'm going to take all of this technology. I'm going to walk across the street to a huge competitor. That competitor released a competing product in three months. Right. No R&D investment, no years of research. And put the startup out of business, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wipes you out, especially in the startup. When your tech goes out the door and you can't get it back and your competitor starts selling it for pennies on the dollar because they don't have to recoup any of that R&D expense, you're, you're toast. You're done. So no one would ever trust me to run an oil and gas company, but on the weird, the weird case that actually happens, what do I do about that? Are there some best practices? Are there some thoughts you would advise a client on how to protect against this? Sure. So I'll start with the competitor context where you have perhaps a former employee going out the door. Of course, I would say your offboarding process is the most important thing. You need to have a process. You need to follow your process. And your process needs to include permission-based um, access to data. You need to only let your employees have access to data that they need in order to perform their job. So your intern does not need to have access to the crown jewels of the company, for example. So you should just start there with the right permissions granted at the time. And then when you're offboarding someone or you know they are leaving, curtail those permissions to absolute minimum or revoke them altogether. Another thing you can do is you can encrypt your data so that it's harder to steal in the first place because when you try to download it, you don't know what the encryption key is and so you can't decode it anyway. And then monitor access when you know somebody is leaving. You can see, are they starting to download a lot more information than they did previously? Are they starting to try and access resources that they've never tried to access before? That means they're taking stuff. The other thing I would say on the former employee side is to flag employees who assisted in litigation or would have been privy to confidential attorney work product privilege communication specifically relating to litigation. Because we have seen, and this is crazy, but um, like a land guy, for example, who was working for a producer and then kind of went to the dark side. <laughs> um, but, you know, making a really, you know, making sure that those employees sign agreements when they leave. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can get that consulting agreements, et cetera, you know, a little consideration as they exit that holds them to you and they have to cooperate with you in litigation. Because the last thing you want is a former employee who leaves, who had, you know, relevant information, you need his cooperation in a case. And he's like, screw you, I'm not, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And you can also use that opportunity to remind them. We have valuable confidential information and trade secrets and you cannot take them with you or there are going to be significant consequences to not only the company you end up at that's a competitor, but also you personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So we've got a question. Uh, someone's asked, who is really being held responsible when an employee leaves? And I think where that question is kind of kind of going, is that a level of protection too? If Jim has people leaving his group, are we monitoring Jim as the company, et cetera? Yes. So I would say the the company that is soon to be uh, departed from, they need to be doing monitoring and being protecting themselves because one of the obligations when you have trade secrets is you have to have things in place that keep it secret. So if you're not keeping things secret, that's on you. But I will also say when you go to file a lawsuit, you're filing against your competitor that knows that information came from you, 
it's inevitable if they're taking seven years of technology and releasing a product in three months, for example. And it's also that employee that has breached his uh, employ employment contract, most likely, or his offboarding and closing agreement. Yeah. The, so I was in the financial realm, private equity, and usually the way that was dealt with is you generally shared in the profits of each of these funds you had, i.e. Mm -hmm. the carry. Mm -hmm. And so you had garden leave provisions of, you know, you had to sit out a year if mm -hmm. you wanted your carry to vest and, and come with you. Have you seen anything in the way? I guess that's just really hard to do with potentially field level people of holding some money back mm -hmm. to ensure compliance over time. But yeah, you, you can tend to run into some antitrust problems that way, because when you have anti-solicit or non-solicitation, no hiring agreements, sometimes you'll run afoul of antitrust provisions because everybody has a right to work, obviously. And if we, the, we fought a war over that yeah. and the good guys <laughs> won. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so it, you know, I would say that you have a contract when you come in as a new employee that you sign, that's very important that it has all the right provisions for it. If that mm -hmm. employee decides to leave. But you can also have exit agreements. So to the extent you didn't get it right on the front end, right. you can fix it on the back end. Yeah. So we kind of got a clarification on that question. And I think you answered some of it, but I'll just ask again. So if you truly had an employee that signed an NDA, are there any, is there really anything you can do under that if the person doesn't have a lot of money? So, I mean, are there restraining orders, things mm -hmm. like that? Yes, you mm -hmm. can get restraining orders. You can get an injunction and you can also let their new employer know. And so that new employer can be on the hook as well. So obviously the point is to find the deep pocket, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to file the lawsuit and an individual doesn't typically have that kind of money. So you need to look and see where they go and um, that inevitably you can include them in that lawsuit, the new employer. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. We want to jump to uh, cyber to cyber. The last. Okay. Yes. Let me let me start with a funny cyber story. So Kane Anderson, we had at any given point, call it 20, 25 um, portfolio companies. And we would do an ESG conference where we would have all the CEOs go to a resort somewhere and the trade would be, hey guys, we're gonna spend all day talking through ESG type issues. We'll go play golf the next day. Fair, everybody okay with that? And we had a uh, we had a cyber expert come in, and he started his talk with, "Hey, who here signed on to the Wi-Fi?" And it was the name of the resort. And everybody's hand goes up. And he goes, "That's actually my computer, Mr. Hudson. I now have your credit card number." <gasps> yeah. Oh yeah. my God. It was crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's an easy trick. You're sitting in the airport or you're at a hotel. It's, it's one of the easy things that hackers can do is they'll th set them up with a Wi-Fi that looks official and looks legitimate mm -hmm. for the place that you're at. And then they get all that traffic. They can see exactly what's in it. Yeah. It and was... it can be your email. It can be your documents as, you know, lawyers. We have to be very, very careful about mm -hmm. what we work on in a public location for that very reason, because it's client's confidential information. Yeah. So lay it out for us. What else is going on inside yeah, the world? So Colonial Pipeline, um, the poster child for what not to do, unfortunately. <laughs> Look at Chuck. <laughs> I would have been the guy to do that. I'm so glad it wasn't me. 
tell the, tell the story. Yes. So uh -huh. Colonial Pipeline was the subject of a ransomware attack, and uh, it's becoming more and more frequent, especially because oil and gas is critical infrastructure. And so people are looking, people meaning those threat actors that actually send the ransomware attack, they're looking to have the most impact because that gets them the most money on the back end. So it's critical infrastructure of which oil and gas is a part, hospitals, electric grids, all of those things that if they go down, it's a huge problem. So what? Colonial Pipeline is one. And it was a huge problem. huge problem. And was it literally as ridiculous as all the stories out there? Somebody responded to an ad that was in effect a Hooters restaurant ad. Yeah. And that's <laughs> something to it's that not, effect. Yeah, it's not it's not great. It was uh, it was an easy way to get into the system. Uh, people are still the weakest link. I will say that the vast majority of ransomware attacks are, are based on people being the weak link, clicking a link, having a, a very terrible, poor password that's e easy to guess or the default password on the product that <laughs> it came with, which are typically available online. So mm -hmm. the ransomware attack came in through their billing system, which you honestly don't think, well, you know, whatever, that's not that big of a deal. But to prevent the spread of that attack, Colonial Pipeline voluntarily shut down its entire system <laughs> for six days. And because Normally, they had to, though, kind of, right? I mean, yes, they weren't you, set up to, there's ways to prevent that. Yeah, they, they, they needed to do it to prevent the spread, which that's fair. But what you do when you shut down your main systems is you're supposed to have a backup option. You're supposed to have a plan for what to do when that happens. They had a plan, but they had never practiced it, and they didn't realize it didn't work. So it created gas shortages a 17 state wide emergency declaration based on these it's, gas it's a ridiculous shortages. amount of refined products that mm -hmm. run through colonial i mean it's it's a really big deal yeah and so eventually after everything kind of got back online the government has stepped in they've started releasing new rules and regulations because this obviously can't happen again they're increasing their oversight so that this doesn't happen again and i, I mean just to cut right to the point like i said people are still the weakest link we need to have training. You need to not use default passwords. You need to not use easy to guess passwords. And I know I hate that because every time I have to change my password on my work computer, I'm like, it's so annoying. what am I going to change it to now? I feel right. like I just did this and I'm going to forget it. But it is so, so, so important because it will end up having a disaster like this on our hands. And everyone is going to get hacked. Yeah. It's kind of like the, you know, I don't know. You can't the guarantees the of life, right? You can't. But you can make yourself a smaller target. So we had this happen. So one of our portfolio companies comes into the office one morning and nobody can pull up the computer. Mm. CEO gets a, an email saying, hey, we've got all your data. We've locked down your computers. Mm -hmm. We want $4,999. We want it in Bitcoin. Supposedly the reason they choose that amount is that 5,000 or, or greater, the FBI gets called. Mm -hmm. So they don't want the FBI. So our CEO, to his credit, negotiates back. I'll give you $4,999, but you have to tell me how you got into my system. Mm. Oh. And, you know, went back and forth for a while. And about 45 minutes later, the other side's like, okay, deal. So goes really? to literally a Bitcoin ATM to get the Bitcoin, sends it to them. And the, the hackers were good to their word. They go, here's how, here's how we did it. We wow. snuck in right through here. Turned out 14 out of 25 of our portfolio companies had the same, mm. uh, 
Ah, oh, so that was a or, huge benefit then and paying and getting that information. Yeah. And they're, well, they're lucky. They're lucky yeah. they got the information on how they got into the system That's first right. of all, but they're also really lucky they got their information back because mm -hmm. that doesn't always happen, yeah. even if you pay. And, yeah. and the CEO even told us, he said, I'm going to pay and but we may not get there's it back. a huge chance we mm -hmm. don't even get it back. Mm -hmm. You know, they're certainly not going to tell us our weak link and all that. But he did that. Thus, the cybersecurity expert that came out to our ESG conference and did the whole thing with the Wi-Fi. Uh, he actually had a system whereby if you paid him an annual fee, he would go search the dark web mm -hmm. looking for your information because that would lead to, okay, you've got a hole because mm -hmm. we found this out in the, in the mm -hmm. dark web. Yeah, there's a lot of services that can do monitoring. They can come in after the fact to help you discover what the weaknesses were because they're as up-to-date as you can possibly get. We're always going to be several steps behind, but you can either be a couple of uh, feet behind or you can be miles and miles behind. So the the object is obviously to be as close as you can to the state of the art. And, and most of these vendors, they're very good at that. I will say, however, you need to hire them through your lawyer because you want privilege to attach in case you're because ever hacked you don't want whatever they said was the critical vulnerability. Right. It's basically them telling you everything you did wrong. And then we get the case and the plaintiffs are like, exhibit one. Right. Yeah. You're like, you knew about the Great. critical vulnerability and you didn't do anything about it. So you, you want to make sure that you're covering everything under the cloak of privilege so that you don't get stuck having to produce things later. And mm -hmm. the wording matters. Another, as I recall, this um, cyber expert, another thing was the you know if it's chuck yates is the ceo and my email is you know chuck at digital wildcatters look for chuck y at digital wildcatters mm -hmm. and variations of that because that's how they get you a lot you know i'll, I'll they'll send a fake email mm -hmm. to julie right. and say hey i need 200 bucks or i need this or mm -hmm. whatever and you ping you engage and that's how you get in yep mm -hmm. yeah uh, uh like I said, people are still the weakest link. And a lot of times it is still through email. And so it's important when you see somebody's name at the top to click the name to actually see what the email address is. Because if you don't recognize who it is immediately and you're like, well, it must be somebody from my organization that's in another office, for example. But you click it. It's like, no, this is actually a Gmail address. It isn't even internal to mm -hmm. the firm or the company or whatever. Right. And they they found a way to exploit the part of Microsoft that allows you to shorthand to just a person's name and not show the email address. Yeah. So you don't realize this isn't who they say they are. Yeah. What else are we seeing out there? The, I guess the, the another best practice, as I recall, you know, anytime money's involved, there needs to be a phone call. There needs to be mm -hmm. an in-person, you know, if, if the CEO wants somebody to wire 10 million bucks or whatever exactly. it is. You two talk. Pick right. up the phone and double check. Yes, Pick that's right. also yeah. a good practice. Yeah. I'll say the other thing is just to protect getting inside the system, because obviously the weak points, you can't eliminate them. People are going to get into your systems. So then you need to limit the damage they can do. One mm -hmm. option is to encrypt as much of your data as possible, because if they can't get it out and they can't read it, they can't do anything with it, you're a smaller target. So encryption is a big point. Another big point is segmentation. And what I mean by that. That's what I was referring to with Colonial Pipeline. Yeah. So segment your systems so that if some one, let's say system A is compromised, 
you can't then get access to system B where perhaps the crown jewels are. So you don't if have you to shut segment, everything down. Yeah. If you segment, you limit the amount of spread that you can have and you don't have to shut down your whole kit and caboodle mm -hmm. to take care of it. So that's another thing you can do. Also, as we learned from Colonial Pipeline, have a plan and practice the plan. Yeah. And update that plan every year, at least once a year practice and at least once a year you need to update. Cybersecurity laws are changing almost daily at this point. Every state has is starting to have their own. Then we have a variety of federal ones that cover the whole of the United States. If you also operate overseas, different countries have their own. GDPR is the one that controls Europe, which is different. And they're all different. <laughs> Even the so. state one. So now it's like you can comply with, you know, cyber privacy laws federally, but you may not be complying. I can tell you in California, I mean, in certain other states that have much different, maybe more stringent requirements. And implied in that, I think, is constantly educate your right. workforce. I mean, because yes. the hackers That's the are, practice, the plan. Yeah. Real life incident training is great. Like doing mm -hmm. an exercise, especially for um, C-suite folks who, you know, that's usually the best way for them, you know, in a small time, right? Like do an incident and then have like the talk through after. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people don't think about this, but if your systems have been compromised, you may not have access to anything on your servers or anything on your computer. Your contact. So that list. means you need to have a printed copy in the binder. And like, like who you're, you're going to call, who's going to call who and when, because you also have to uh, notify certain agencies, right? And so there needs to be somebody tasked with, okay, you're the person in charge of if this happens, you're calling these people and have the contacts ready, right? Because that's another way you can really get into some trouble is not making those notifications. So I'm a cautionary tale on this. When you get a new iPhone, you need to have your contacts turned on when they suck it up to the iCloud. Because if the contacts are turned off, <laughs> they, don't they don't go up there. I was so excited. They were giving me $500 for my old iPhone. I'm like, yeah, take it. Great. Just wipe oh, it. No. They wipe it. I'm like, where are my contacts? Yeah. Oh, no. It has made my life much simpler, though. Yeah. I just don't respond. You just get to guess when they know. Like, no, who, who is this? Yeah. I just don't even text back. I, just, <laughs> I don't know. That's always All enough. right. We actually have a question, and I've never thought of this before. So this is good idea, bad idea. I don't. Okay. The person says, I don't even use passwords anymore. I go through the forgot my password process every time I need to log in to something that isn't saved and make up a new ridiculous, never going to remember it phrase and then repeat. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Oh, I mean, I don't hmm. think it's necessarily a terrible idea because at least you're creating complicated passwords in the first instance. So and you're changing them constantly. Yeah. So that's good. However, I, I kind of just wonder how frequently you're either reusing the same one without realizing it or saving it to your, for example, Google Google Chrome. And then, of course, it goes up into the cloud and then it can be hacked. That yeah, way, like if it's saved separate. to your Apple passwords, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So if it, it goes in and then it's automatically pre-populated anytime you go to that website. So then, uh, you know, you, you can have problems that way. But I, I think in the first instance, having that strong, really strong password is a step in the right direction. I applaud their creativity. <laughs> And engineer, I mean, to me, I'm like, that sounds like a pretty good idea to me. No. I know. I applaud uh, their diligence because right. ABC123 <laughs> seems to work really well for me. So, uh, all right. We got one C left. What's the last C? I think it was like, I think we kind of covered it with corruption, but I can certainly always talk more about that. 
Um, I want we climate, have cyber. climate change. Talk about climate change. Yeah, I will talk about that. So winter storm, that's the other thing. There's climate litigation, right? We talked in the first instance, you brought up the Supreme Court case, right. climate change. That's them saying, okay, you, you know, ABC gas company, you caused climate change and I'm going to sue you. I do note that those lawsuits and of course, like I, I'm not crazy. Like I believe climate change is real. Right. But, um, as a lawyer, the allegations are pretty absurd to me, but, um, they're scary and they're going to have to all be played out and tried. But the other piece, if I say climate, you could say, isn't, you know, aren't the lawsuits necessarily saying you, you know, created a whole no zone. So you got to pay for it. It's, cases I call more generally climate, meaning like winter storm. So Chuck, you were here in winter storm, Mary. Weren't you? You live yeah. we lived through that. Um shutdown. I've owned two H twos. So I was I was probably uh at fault for that for uh <laughs> polluting the environment. <laughs> well it was I mean we all at least down here in Texas lived through it and it shut everything down. Um and out created an emergency, statewide emergency, but um it then also led to the huge wave. And if you're certainly a lawyer in Houston, you know, that's a huge wave of litigation. Um, I don't countless, I mean, hundreds of lawsuits filed on behalf of tens of thousands of people. And it all related to when the utilities lost gas. So then the people lost heat or whatever. You have those lawsuits. But then you also have lawsuits between companies who, you know, were supposed to supply gas right to the utilities or um, pipelines were supposed to supply gas to a gas plant who then mm -hmm. supplies it to a utility. Right. And so it just sparked a huge wave of litigation kind of all throughout price the chain. Hikes. You know, right. uh, obviously the prices went up substantially for some people that are on a spot market. And one thing I will say that had been kind of true is that that, that winter storm litigation or whatever I had thought would end up being kind of limited to the location. Um, I will say people in the Northwest and I was talking to a client CEO the other day, um, not the Northwest, Northeast, I'm sorry, are anticipating like a winter storm Yuri event, at least one this Christmas. Um, and so they're kind of already looking at what's happened here, but I will say something that's a little disturbing, I guess, is that there's no guarantee you won't be sued somewhere else. So something recently we've seen um, are that, say, the gas companies, you know, down here, pipelines are getting sued in other states relating to Winter Storm Uri. Because, right, it's a, it's a huge network. Pipelines are like, it's like a network of highways and they go all across the country, right? And so when there's a major impact at one, it has all of these impacts at another. But that's one thing that maybe I didn't even anticipate is that it's not even just going to be fighting litigation, right, in Houston relating to the winter storm that occurred here. You may have litigation that arises relating to that storm in other places, given the impacts. Oh, interesting. I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about that. And so kind of say what you just said to make sure I understand it's literally these weather events happening. They're just going to be more lawsuits. Yes. And it's Got a it. domino effect that even though the storm is here in Houston or Dallas or Texas, it, it dominoes out to a variety of other States just because of the intersection of all the pop lines. And I will say, I mean, client, the, the guy looked at me cause I, I mentioned like winter storm very briefly when we were talking and he was like, Oh, we got to stay in touch. I mean, they're, they're preparing for it. Um, and there's more, as we all know, extreme climate uh, situations. So, you know, the Northeast is very concerned. Well, and I'd even I'd even say say this is it's way more talked about in the media. It's way mm -hmm. more readily available. Children are growing up with climate change courses and the like. So 
whether it's happening or it's not happening. Right. You know, what was the old George Costanza line? It's not a lie if you believe it. You <laughs> know, and, and people, people do believe it. And so, right. As and it's see, top of mind. It's very top of mm -hmm. mind. That That's a better way to say what I was trying to say. Well, and the yeah. activists and a lot of the people who are quite honestly funding this because it's not, litigation isn't free, um, are a lot better about like putting their messaging out there. Totally. Right. And including, especially with youth. That's a really interesting thing that you brought up because that is. Um, you know, something that being in oil and gas, and I'm not sure about a lot of the listeners being in the oil and gas profession, but, you know, I'm finding recruiting harder and harder. I mean, a lot of sadly younger folks. I mean, I do think, um, you know, we just have to do a better job. Yeah, we talk about that every day around here um, because, I mean, my three kids who've lived the greatest lives on the planet, I want to come back as one of them <laughs> right? because they have great lives. Um, if you ask them tomorrow, Hey, would you get rid of fossil fuels? You know what they'd say? Oh, yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. Dad. My mm -hmm. res snarky response back is always, well, just stop using it. And guess what? Right. It'll, it'll go away. But um, I do think that's essential. And I've given multiple speeches on this. Colin McClellan gives multiple mm -hmm. speeches on this is people are actually curious about our business. They are. We, 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 are not, we have not lost this battle. No. I promise you. What we need to do is everybody has a iPhone. Everybody needs to shoot content, document what you do. I mean, mm -hmm. Colin made a, a video where he said how a tick, how a, a drill bit worked, put it on TikTok, 1.2 million views. Oh, yeah. All the comments are like, this is so great. And so anyway. And even with talking, like when we travel for trial and you're in town and you're talking to local people or, you know, even jur juries or jurors, um, they are interested. They really are. And actually, I think, they're sometimes really taken aback with how their perception doesn't really maybe match up with the reality. Um, and that's been my experience. I definitely. love teaching, teaching a set of folks that didn't know anything about the industry or the technology or whatever. And it could be a drill bit, a downhole tool, a sensor or something that's wireless in nature that's passing data. And they learn something they didn't know before and they can be proud and excited about that and tell, you know, go back and tell your family and you're mm -hmm. talking a bit when about it when you're in the jury room. And it's, I, I personally love it. I love learning new stuff every day. Well, it was, uh, so I opened up just Zoom rooms uh, last summer and I said, hey, if you're under 25, come sit in a Zoom room with me. We're not going to record anything. Let's just talk. Ooh, I awesome. want to hear why you went into mm -hmm. energy, why you didn't go into mm -hmm. energy. And so I would do that kind of all day long with folks. And there was a 24-year-old engineer from Canada and said, Chuck, let me just tell you what the issue is. Big, large oil and gas company would come to my university. They'd send a 55-year-old white guy, and he would call his speech extracting oil and gas from the ground. And 10 people would show up, 20 minutes in, oh. five of them had left, and that happened. Freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. Senior year, sent a 27-year-old engineer who'd grown up in India, who titled the speech, Utilizing AI to Image the Subsurface. Right. 200 people show up. His opening remark was something to the effect of, oh my God, I've never talked to this many people. This is so cool. Let's pull up the computer. And he's bouncing around and he's just showing all this neat stuff. By the end of the speech, 400 people are in the room, crowded in. Oh, they don't want mm -hmm. him to stop. So we're really not that far away. No. And, uh, and we got a question earlier that I think we just implicitly answered. It's, you know, why is there so much negativity towards our industry? Because we don't tell our stories. 
and in a vacuum, what happens? People well, and the other and people who feel very strongly about our industry are, they are, I mean, they're spending massive amounts of money on, you know, commercials on even like that Montana youth trial. They had professional photographers up there taking pictures every morning of these, you know, quite honestly, really adorable teenage kids in Montana. I mean, it works. Yeah, it totally works. And you've hear back from CEOs. Well, oh my gosh, I can't let people create content and record. Mm -hmm. And my response back is always, you got the right people, you got the right training, you got the right culture. You trust them with drilling rigs. You can trust them with right. an iPhone. So, right. all right, this has been cool. I could do this all day, <laughs> but give us kind of final thoughts. What do client, what do people need to be thinking about when we needed a graphic energy on trial. Or I something. know. Yeah, we should have done something more dramatic. <laughs> I know. I feel like we definitely had some because, I mean, I always have visuals. But um. So final thoughts. I have like a lawyer in the industry. Like, you need somebody that knows. That's always my favorite advice, by the way. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, seriously, Fire it is. Lawyer. If you're talking to somebody and they don't know your industry, they're not going to be able to give you competent advice that actually is going to solve your problems that may not translate to other industries. But they also may be the best lawyer in the world. But if they don't understand your industry, it's not that they can't learn it, but you're going to pay for them to learn it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, we deal with bills and client budgets and everything else. And I understand that. Um, and so that can be kind of frustrating sometimes, particularly even for us when it's opposing counsel who doesn't understand the oil and gas industry, that's like banging your head against a wall. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. Um, it but, also can be fun because you're like, <laughs> they don't yeah, know they what don't know what they're not, right? So I'm going to pull one over on them. But I don't know. But the only thing I would say about corruption, I guess, because that's kind of depressing if you think about it, like what can I do about that? Um, but I encourage clients and a lot more clients are calling me about this issue, but assessing corruption risk of a venue. Um, there are ways to do that. I know how to do that. There is a greater likelihood of things like undisclosed conflicts of a judge, meaning like maybe the judge is in on that with the other side um, on the case, um, including like jury manipulation. Like there were there were indications in a case I had in a role place where state court and clear indications of that somebody was tampering with the jury. Um, and I mean, it went to the feds and. When the response is, how is this happening? I don't know. So, I mean, there's a real problem. I don't think people know that. But um, research the opposing party and their attorneys. Um, search their names and the judge's name in your client systems, particularly like accounting and land. You'd be so surprised how many times, you know, you go then look at, I don't know, right, the judge, mm -hmm. and he has done business with your company. I mean, it's something you want to know. Because at minimum, you may want to, you know, try to make a disclosure on the record just so everybody knows and it's, you know, out there. But um, knowing is at least half the battle. Yes. Because yeah. you um, can avoid a, land, a landmine where you, when you know where it is. Yeah, you can, <laughs> avoid, you can avoid the railroad. I mean, we had a state court judge recuse from a case because we found out that he had an oil and gas lease with our client. And I made sure that to tell the plaintiff's lawyer who yeah. passed that info along. Yeah. And next thing you know, he was gone. He didn't want to be on the case anymore. So. Yeah. That's great. So how do people run you down if they want to chat? Oh, yes. So a more at MRLLP.com is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And I, I endeavor to respond within 24 hours. So L Varnado, L-V-A-R-N-A-D-O at MRLLP.com. Same as Ashley. Um, but also uh, LinkedIn. I'm a big on LinkedIn. So look me up on LinkedIn. Um, you know, just Lauren Varno, Michaelman in Houston. So love to chat. 
Yeah. Ashley Moore in Dallas. Same thing. There we go. Well, uh, appreciate you guys coming on. And now that I'm scared to death. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, we don't want to leave it on that. I'm bad. somewhat relieved, though, that I did drop out of law school. So <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it at that. Digital Wildcatters, thanks for joining us for this. Well, um, uh, I enjoyed it a whole lot. Hope you found mm -hmm. it informative. I'm sure we're going to post it so you guys can uh, – can watch it later if you want. I'm sure a lot of micro content will come out of this and uh, appreciate you tuning in.